I think one of the things that we need to do is learn how to talk about it. I think we need to learn how to, you know, the discussion that you and I have had for a lot of people would be extremely difficult to have. Um, and I don't necessarily mean at a theoretical level. I mean, if you, even if you take all that away, you know, having discussions with people about the way that their lives depend on the, the abuse, the oppression and, and the death of other animals is really, really hard. People shut down, they turn away. In this episode, you will hear from Associate Professor Nick Taylor from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. She is talking to us about violence to animals and the interconnection of oppression. I'm talking about the kind of everyday condoned eating of animals, using of their body parts, slaughtering of them, that kind of stuff. It's pervasive, it's normative, um, and it's condoned and we don't look at it. This is a podcast for critical and imaginative conversations about this complex social issue. My name is Ben Lohmeyer and welcome to Exploring Violence and Society. My guest today is Associate Professor Nick Taylor from the Human Services and Social Work Program at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Nick is an internationally recognised critical and public sociologist. Her research focuses on mechanisms of power and marginalisation expressed in and through human relations with other species and is informed by critical and intersectional feminism. She has published over 70 articles, books and book chapters and is the convener of the Animals in Society Working Group. Uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, she was also my PhD supervisor. Uh, so I can say from personal experience, she is probably one of the most academically generous people I have met. So welcome, Nick. Hello. Thank you. That's a lovely introduction. <laughs> Great. All right. So let's start with the first question for you. Um, let's assume I know nothing about the sociology of relationships between humans and other species, but I am interested in this problem of violence and animals. Uh, how should I start thinking about this issue? Or how did you start thinking about this issue? Yeah, it's a, it's a big issue. So it's it's tough to know where to start. I'm going to take that in, in two separate ways. I started thinking about this practically. Um, I did a lot of volunteer work at animal shelters and it became pretty clear pretty quickly that um, companion animals are often abused. Um, we would take in animals that had been abused. We would also take in animals um, and foster them for women and kids who were heading to domestic violence shelters and they couldn't take their animals with them but they wouldn't leave the violence and leave the animal there. So I had that kind of practical exposure um, and this was late teens and then I went off and did a degree and I was introduced to critical feminism, um, sociology of power, sociology of violence and I guess all of those kind of collided together for me in terms of the realisation that possibly the most oppressed and abused group in our societies, and that let's face it, there's a lot of them, mm -hmm. um, are, are other species, largely because we don't value them as much as we do any human group. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I started. Um, <laughs> and, and in terms of where students might want to start thinking about the problem of violence and animals, I mean, I think what most of us do is start at the interpersonal level and start caring about the violence that, that is done to companion animals, to those animals that we value. And I think the difficult jump then is moving beyond that to think about animals that are not valued. Um, so animals like pest species or possibly animals trapped in animal agriculture. Because um, even though they're valued for what their body parts can give, 
um, they're not valued enough to prevent the violence that's done to them. And I think making that leap can be quite difficult, actually, because we have to face lots of horrors about the way that we do things in our society that we don't necessarily want to face. Mm, okay. So for you, it started with a personal experience uh, and then your, the academic work kind of layered on top of that, if, if that makes sense. Is that, in your experience, a sort of similar or a common pathway that people kind of move through? Is, would that be fair to say? I think so. I mean, I think a lot of critical sociologists, I mean, it's the C. Wright Mills stuff, isn't it, about personal experiences being public troubles or public problems. Um, and I think a lot of the kind of more critically oriented sociologists, that's how we get there. Um, I mean, I have a suspicion, I've never done any research on this, but I have a suspicion that the field that you choose reflects something about your life. So, you know, I work with a lot of people who do research around domestic violence. They're either survivors themselves or they know people who've, who've been exposed. Um, same with the animal activists that I work with. They, you know, they've seen animal abuse up close somehow and it's deeply affected them and they've, they've then wanted to go on and, and stop it. Um, and there's no reason that you can't keep that kind of activist mentality while still being a scholar. You know, you don't have to sit in your ivory tower. Nice. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think that that, with absolutely no research whatsoever and a huge generalisation, I think that that probably is a way <laughs> that a lot of people um, get from the personal to the political. Great. And that shift from the, the personal political, uh, like you've described before, can be, can be really difficult and confronting. You kind of have to uh, challenge a lot of the, the assumptions that you, kind of, you start with and perhaps the personal bit is a... a initiator for that um, but how do we then start becoming aware of or peeling back some of the layers of our assumptions and exposing some of that everyday violence that we wouldn't otherwise yeah, even think about you know we, we assume um, that there's certain places for certain types of animals like you said in our society and then that's okay how do we start challenging or becoming aware of our assumptions yeah um, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, you know, I know a lot of animal activists who would love to know the answer to that question so that we could stop um, the daily kind of animal violence that occurs. I think as sociologists, one of the things that we can do is we can start to think about this structurally and we can start to think about this in terms of ideology. So, you know, animal abuse in our societies is by and large extremely normative, extremely taken for granted and largely condoned. Um, and by that, I don't mean those one-off instances that cause outrage on social media where maybe a puppy was beaten or whatever. I'm talking about the kind of everyday condoned eating of animals, using of their body parts, slaughtering of them, that kind of stuff. It's pervasive, it's normative, um, and it's condoned and we don't look at it. And I think as a sociologist, even if you're not interested in animals, it's an interesting exercise to say, well, what are the ideological mechanisms that lead to our being able to look away so easily. Because that in itself gives you a really good understanding of how discourse and ideology works in society to close down particular avenues where we might question things. You know, because as, as, as we know from kind of the Marxist stuff, you know, ideology operates to, to, keep things, to keep the status quo where it is, to keep things the same, to avoid us challenging them. So how do those ideologies work to, to, to make most human beings think that it's absolutely fine to inflict the violence that we have to on another animal's body in order to eat them or use them or whatever? 
So, you know, that's an interesting sociological question as well as an animal rights question. Mm, okay. So are there any key... Um, you, you talked about ideologies, but also some of the other language you, you used to, uh, includes you know, mechanisms of power. Um, so what is, is maybe, can you point to one or two initial or important mechanisms of power or ideologies that you think are a good starting point to start challenging some of those assumptions? Is there a key idea or a key process that exists in our society that's a good starting point? Um, I think one of the theoretical tools, and I might be talking sideways to what you just asked me here, but one of the key theoretical tools that I think we can use is the notion of an animal industrial complex. Mm -hmm. So this, is, it comes from the idea of a prison industrial complex, and, and we've got various other industrial complexes. And it's essentially taking a critical look at how particular practices in society, whether it be the incarceration of people or whether it be animal abuse, how they are tied into broader socio-political structures like capitalism. Um, and, and in the case of the prison, the prison industrial complex, you know, like the weapons industries and so on. And I know I run the risk of sounding like a conspiracy theorist here, and I'm not. Um, but I think if we use this notion of an industrial complex, we can start to look at how ideology and discourse factor into economic, social and political processes in our society and then we have to kind of say okay well, well where does the marginalization of certain groups whether it's prisoners or whether it's animals where does that sit in that what's the purpose of it um, and one way again at the purpose of it is to look at the discourses and the mechanisms that allow it to occur in the first place mm -hmm. so it's a it's very circular um, but I think this notion of the animal industrial complex works I think it points us to systemic oppressions as opposed to the notion that animal abusers are just bad seeds. So, you know, that's a very safe way of looking at things. And we do it with everybody. We do it, you know, like with with individuals who um, abuse children or who kill children. We have this notion that they are just bad people who did a bad thing on a one-off occurrence. Whereas as sociologists, we say, well, actually, no, maybe there's something about our society that tolerates a level of violence that actually allows that behavior in the first place. It's not just psychopathology. And that takes us to this idea of systemic oppressions. Um, and if you accept that, then another, another, I, I suppose, device is, is, you know, everybody, it's the millennial thing at the minute to talk about privilege. So we have gender privilege, we have class privilege. Well, what happens if you throw out the idea of species privilege? What happens if you look at it in those kind of terms and you expose those mechanisms that allow us to think that humans are exceptional and because of that exceptionalism, we can therefore treat other animals and in fact the environment um, in any which way we please. So it's about taking some of the, these typical sociological devices and just applying them to species and seeing what happens, kind of almost, almost being playful with the theoretical ideas and seeing what it throws up. I like that idea of, of being playful, you know, taking a tool and just saying, what if, you know, what if we put this tool that seems to work over here uh, applies to this group of people? What if we apply it to that group of people? You know, what different ideas will we come, from, come up with? That's really interesting. Um, 
I almost want to take a back step uh, because uh, you mentioned the industrial complex. I, I would hope, can you break that down just a little bit for us, a little bit further in terms of what that, those words mean? And maybe even an example is helpful uh, because I think it speaks clearly to this idea that you were, you're also unpacking, which is uh, blaming individuals versus blaming a, a system. Maybe blame's the wrong word there, but, but saying the problem exists in a person versus actually saying maybe the problem is created out of our systems. Uh, so what, yeah, what do you mean by industrial complex? Can you break that idea down a little bit more for us? Yeah, I don't know that I can do a very good job. Um, but it is, it's the idea that one institution doesn't exist in a vacuum that it exists in relationships to other institutions. So the classic idea is the notion of the prison. And that let's say if we take the idea of the privatization of prisons that's happening in North America and that is being mooted in other countries, um, it's the idea that the prison doesn't just exist in, as this neutral entity to do what it says it does, which is to rehabilitate or to punish people, yeah, whichever view you take. What, what it actually does, it exists in this network with other institutions um, that increasingly under neoliberal times are becoming privatised and making a profit from that kind of idea of, of, a, of an industrial complex. I mean, I think originally the idea was, was first came up in the 1960s with the idea of a weapons industrial complex, which was, you know, the idea that the weapons that are being churned out for, for war um, are operating in this network that's linked to capitalism, it's linked to profit, and it's linked to abuse because it's linked to profit. Um, so I think the same thing with prisons, the same thing with animals. And when you come down to look at an animal industrial complex, what we're talking about is, for example, the fact that animal agriculture is one of the most kind of vertically and horizontally integrated industries that's out there. So it is tied up with um, shipping industries. It's tied up with um, labeling industries, with supermarkets and so on and so forth. It doesn't exist on its own. It sits within this network and the network colludes, if you like, although not necessarily knowingly, but the network colludes to produce um, you know, an ascension being through to parts that we can consume for profit and make that an entirely legitimate process. Hmm. That's great. Thank you for doing that. It is a complex idea to break down. I'm going to see if I can make a parallel to something in, uh, in the youth study space and just to, again, tease it out a little bit more. Um, you mentioned the privatisation of uh, prisons. And so I think there's some language, particularly in the American context, about the school to prison pipeline. So this yeah. idea that the school, uh, the people who fail within a schooling context uh, regularly appear or, or directly appear within the prison system. Uh, and so there's some connection between the way that uh, the, there is the way that we educate and the types of people who end up in uh, in trouble with the law. And I, I think perhaps in, in the UK there's a really good example of this. There's actually corporations who run a school who also run the local prison. And so it, it can <laughs> sound uh, conspiratorial, but there's, there's an inherent benefit uh, in the, the the financial system there for them to not educate well to avoid yeah. people ending up in prison. Um, and that's not, I think there's a distinction here between uh, that being an individual's fault and that being a, a product of a system is really important. Because yeah. if it's an individual's fault, it's a conspiracy, right? It sounds like this person's yeah. trying to work it all out. But if it's just part of the system, it's like, well, that's, that's something that is a structural issue that we need to change. Is that a good comparison? Yeah. 
It is. I mean, I think this is, apart from, I've just got to say, the first thing I thought when you said that was Goffman and his notion of total institutions, because prisons and schools could arguably be seen to be total institutions, you know, which is about not raising critical thinkers who don't rock the boat, who keep the status quo. So we're back full circle to ideology and discourse again. Um, But yes, I mean, I, I, I think... I mean, I'm a sociologist. To me, everything's systemic. You know, very, very few things are, are individual. I mean, that's not to say that there isn't psychopathology out there. Um, but I think, you know, in, in America, when, when we look at things like the majority of prisoners are black men, you know, that's not because black men are inherently criminal. Not at all. Same as over here. You know, the Maori population is incredibly high. In Australia, indigenous population in prison is incredibly high. That's not down to individual fault. That's down to a system that routinely marginalizes these people and others them so that at one and the same time, they don't have the opportunities to get wherever it is that they want to go. And the rest of society blames them for that as though it were an individual fault. Now, where this transfers over to animals is where it starts to get more interesting because we don't necessarily see that trajectory for animals. You know, we don't necessarily Mm. see... Um, and part of that is the problem because we don't see them as individuals with agencies with lives that matter. But the same mechanisms apply where we marginalise them. We don't necessarily blame them as victims, but we marginalise them in order for us not to take seriously the very bad things that are done to them. Yeah. So I think it's similar mechanisms, and that's what I mean about the, the ideologies and it being systemic within a complex as opposed to individual. Yeah, great. So it's not necessarily about us individual uh, thinking that um, it's okay to do violence to animals. Like that's a problem, but that's a product of a, a broader structural issue where it's it's a financial profit among other profits uh, to continue to believe animals are, are less than humans or not worthy yeah. of the same levels of respect. Um, so there's that systemic um, benefit like a better word or, or, or pressure to think in that way on individuals yeah no, absolutely okay. and I don't think it's just about profit I think it's about um, maintenance of, of cultural identity if you like or human identity rather than cultural so I think that throughout history um, we have told ourselves that humans are better than other animals we contrast our humanity with animality in order to say that we are logical we're reasonable we're better Um, And that that comes into this. It isn't just about financial profit. It's about, if you like, epistemological or ideological profit, where Mm -hmm. it allows us to keep believing that we are the masters of this planet, that we are the owners who can misuse because it's ours. It's that mindset. And that mindset, of course, fits into capitalism and fits into profit, but it isn't just that. Um, So I think it goes a bit broader still when it comes down to animals, perhaps because they are so underrepresented and so um, marginalized mm. as you were saying that i was thinking uh it it kind of demonstrates how difficult it is to to make any change in this space because the idea is so disruptive uh, yeah. because it's not just disrupting an economic system which in and of itself would be hard enough to change but it's interrupting cultural and identity and um, a whole range of our social systems that are all benefiting from this this single single idea or single issue Ah. yeah it makes it makes wholesale change really hard but i have to i keep saying this to to my students over here who get quite down when they're exposed to these ideas you know they they fall into that funk of well it's it's so so big how do we challenge it what can we do 
I think, well, you know, it's not perfect, but we've come a long way in terms of gender, in terms of ethnicity. We haven't come far enough and there are still structural problems, you know, but but we have we have done that. And I think we're sitting on the, ironically here, we're, I think we're sitting on the cusp of a sea change around our attitudes to animals. I think it's anthropocentrically, selfishly, human interest driven, because I think it's around climate change. Um, but we're starting to see veganism become mainstream, for example. We're starting to see very lucrative companies get in on the, on the whole plant, protein-based, plant-based foods. And ironically, which I hate, I think that once we start to see capitalism buying into this, it signals that there really is the beginning of a change. Now, the problem is, because it's done within a capitalist framework, that change is never going to be deep enough to, to ultimately to change things fully. But an optimistic view says maybe it's the first step. Hmm. I love I love the way you put in the optimism and the pessimism hand in hand there. Like it's kind of like well, yes, I know. There is hope. And, I know. and catch me on either day. You do know what I mean? Tomorrow it might be the pessimistic view. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Um, yeah, so the next question I wanted to ask you was about the connection between feminism and human-animal relations. So you mentioned it then briefly in the way you were talking about progress. You know, so you said that we can see progress happening uh, in these other areas, like in uh, some of the, the work that feminists have, made, have achieved. Uh, is that the only connection, or can you tell us in a more theoretical level? How, did, how, did you, how do you work these two ideas together? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are two levels. I think there's a theoretical and a practical level. Um, and I think theoretically, one of the things that intersectional feminism has offered animal studies scholars is the idea that oppressions don't occur separately, which I know sounds terribly simple, um, but but it's become super important to animal studies or animal rights activists who are trying to get attention to animals in a very very noisy place, you know, where we, where we need to give attention to a lot of marginalised and a lot of oppressed groups. And one of the responses can be, well, we don't even look after humans properly, so why should we care about animals? Now, I don't particularly like giving a human-centred or anthropocentric answer to that, but if I'm forced to, the answer is we should care about violence to animals because it's linked to violence to humans and stopping one will stop the other, and therefore we have to, we have to stop them all. And ecofeminism particularly was really important in, in establishing that the, it's the same mechanisms that oppress all forms of difference. So whether that difference is through race or whether it's through gender or ableism or whatever, um, it also is the same mechanism that oppresses species. So it's, for example, normalizing abuse, it's marginalizing victims. Um, it's subject, the, those violent actions are subject to the same justifications across different groups um, and for eco-feminists you know the basic premise was that the violence and abuse of marginalized others is the same it, it comes from the same place and is justified in the same way that violence and abuse of nature is now you can include animals in nature um, or you can just say well we've got this logic of domination that that is a capitalist patriarchal mindset and that if we want to stop violence to all of these disenfranchised groups, then we've got to attack that logic of domination. Um, and that's the key thing from ecofeminism, I think, that translates really well to um, feminist analyses of animal abuse. But there's a practical issue as well. And, you know, the practical issue is that 
the vast majority of animal agriculture depends on the abuse and oppression of female bodies. You know, I mean, I know that male animals are so bobby calves, chicks that, and you know, male chicks that are killed within 24, 48 hours of being born. But those animals that are kept alive in order to pull resources from their bodies, they tend to be female bodies. Um, so there's that kind of practical aspect as well that often gets the attention of feminists. And I think the two fit quite nicely together in terms of analysing capitalist patriarchal logics of domination that excuse violence. There's a, there's a lot in what you've just described for us, which is excellent. And so I'm just going to try and pick out uh, a couple of bits to draw it further. One of the things that I like about um, what you said is that the, the approach is, perhaps there's another better word, but inclusive. So it's actually not uh, about saying uh, I'm interested exclusively on this group and benefiting them, but actually the same process of domination or, or systems domination has effect on everybody and so by tackling that system we benefit everybody is, is that a fair thing to say it is and it works both ways so you know in trying to get in trying to get grant money and trying to do scholarly research in an, in universities that don't really want to hear about animals we can use that we can say to them well this isn't just about animals this is also about helping humans you know so that the, there are those kind of practical outcomes um, but I think, and when I say I think it works both ways, you know, my focus in life has always been animals over humans, um, for better or for worse. And <laughs> I, it, it, you know, I think that's okay because the research I'm doing that aims to kind of help animal lives, it also accidentally for me helps humans. Um, and that's a good thing, right? If you can help more than one group, why wouldn't you? Why would you just focus on on the one group? You know, it doesn't doesn't detract from the research that I do um, to, to help to help humans through this. Um, so it, it is. It's very much this idea of interconnections, which is based on the idea of mechanisms being the same. I mean, sometimes the mechanisms will differ in their nuance. If you're talking about people versus animals, or one group of people versus one another group of people, but the broad parameters of the, those mechanisms that allow us to manage our cognitive dissonance that allow us to look away from the violence. You know, it's the same it's the same stuff that allows us to look away from the fact that no matter how ethical we may be, the majority of our clothes are produced in sweatshops. It's that kind of mechanism that allows us to look away. Um, and once you start seeing those mechanisms, well, then it's almost impossible to see how they're not in connect, interconnected. And so you end up helping all the groups you have to. I was thinking about a parallel to uh, to youth work as a profession because that's the profession I come from. Um, they have youth workers have an ethical orientation towards the young person as a primary client. That's how they articulate it. So, well, if you're in a context where you're working with multiple groups, uh, you've got a deliberate choice that to only represent or represent first the young person's needs. Um, so that can seem exclusive in the sense of it doesn't care necessarily for, uh, say, say, the other adults in the group, um, but it's a recognition of that young people are a typically marginalised, overlooked group yeah. in those contexts and that by highlighting uh, their value and their in inherent um, worth, uh, it actually reflects that broader ethic of representing all people and all uh, groups who are um, who are suffering the same sign of marginalisation. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there, it's, there's a tension there between the individual focus or, and, and that connection between the, the personal structure is the dynamic that we're 
particularly interested in this in this podcast and I think that that's clear in that example um, I feel like I did a terrible job of, of actually articulating that just then, but that's okay. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. We can muddle through together. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so one of the other things you mentioned before was the way that animals can be thought of uh, in human services work in particular, kind of as well, the violence towards them as an indicator of um, the, the broader you know, violence towards humans. So as an example, um, you know, animal abuse as an indicator of domestic violence or sometimes, uh, particularly with young people, you know, if the young people are doing violence towards animals, it's considered as a risk factor towards violence towards humans. Um, so how can we start decentering the human in that space so that we can start seeing the violence that's done to animals more clearly. Yeah, that is interesting. And it feeds right into what you were saying um, previously about the tension between the individual and the structural, because I do think that a lot of this, a lot of the attention we get about human animal abuse links or, or graduation theses, you know, that kids who are cruel to animals will go on to be cruel to humans. Um, they're anthropocentrically driven. So the idea is that we should pay attention to animal abuse purely because it's a red flag that indicates that there's probably human-to-human abuse going on. Now, I, I don't disagree with that. We absolutely should pay attention to that, and we should be talking to the other humans in the house. Hmm. The problem I have with that is the idea that we should solely concentrate on this because there's also an animal being abused you know that animal is suffering on a daily basis and that animal is a victim in their own right of those violent practices and to my mind that deserves attention so this is the tension between the, the human centered and the animal centered between the individual and the structural i also think it's further problematic because one of the things you know if you take on board what we've been talking about about those mechanisms that that justify abuse then um, one of the mechanisms is to objectify the abused as another to allow us to do the violence or the abuse to them and, and remain relatively psychologically unscarred in doing that abuse. Well, if we set animals up as red flags, we're objectifying them. We're not taking the animal abuse seriously. We're saying that they are an object that lets us identify human abuse. And we are therefore mimicking the exact same ideological devices that allow that violence in the in the first place. So how can we expect that mimicry to actually tear it down? It's the order of law stuff, you know, the master's tools can't destroy the master's house. That's, so that's not answering your question at all because what I'm getting at here is why we need to centre animals and you ask me how. <laughs> that's all right, um, we need the why first, I think. Yeah. In terms of how, I mean, I think we need to keep making that argument. I think we need to get that front and centre. But I think we need to pay attention to uh, to animal abuse. I mean, I've just written a book around companion animals and domestic violence. And in it, um, all the way through, we try to center the animals' experiences and make the point that the animals themselves were victims of domestic violence and that they should be called victims of domestic violence. And they weren't. They were often referred to as, you know, sitting alongside the, the true victim, the true victim being, we, we talked to women, being the woman in our case, and we were saying, well, no, the animal is also a victim and we need to address them that way. We need to center them in that respect. But one of the things that became really clear to me in doing the research for that book was that because we haven't seen animals as victims, we haven't done the research. We don't really know what happens to animals when they experience that. I mean, we've got a good guess. 
we know that they respond similarly to us. They have trauma responses. They have stress responses. But so I think there's like three or four studies around the world that have actually been done that look at this because it wasn't figured to be an important question. So one of the ways that we can do to center animals is to literally do that, center them. Just say, well, you know, let's find out more from their perspective. Let's do the best that we can. Wow. Okay. So I love that you've done what we, we talked about earlier, which was taking an idea and playing with it and putting it and saying, well, what if we actually centered the animals? What, what would we find that we previously hadn't looked at just by changing the perspective? That, that's incredible. Um, and I like that. Again, it connects to the, that theme of um, how do we how do we challenge how do we challenge violence? Well, we we look at the mechanisms that allow violence to happen, and we apply that same mechanism to other other people in that circumstance. So, you know, that cognitive dissonance that was required in order to other somebody. Uh, if we don't pay attention to everybody who's experiencing that violence, then we are replicating that same cognitive dissonance in ourselves. And so yeah. we're not really solving a problem. I was, for a paper I wrote a while ago, I was reading some Bauman on the Holocaust, and I've always stayed very clear of making, of drawing similarities between the ways animals are treated in animal agriculture and, and, and the way that the Holocaust played out, because okay. um, even, because that's offensive to a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people in particular. And even though I know mm. that the offensiveness comes because they misunderstand, they think that they're being equated to animals, the fact that it offends them says, well, we won't do that then. Let's not draw those comparisons. That's what it says to me. But Bauman talks about how um, the, um, the Holocaust was not an aberration of modernity, but it was, in fact, caused by modernity, by these ideological mechanisms, by the belief in efficiency and rationality, in treating people like animals, in numbering them and taking away their individuality, their biographies, allowing them to be seen as a homogenous blob of sheep, if you like, as opposed to discrete individuals with lives and histories and futures. And for him, it's absolutely tied to modernity through those mechanisms. And so while I would never draw comparisons between what's happening in animal agriculture and the Holocaust, I would say that it's instructive to look at those mechanisms because the, the road that they can take us down is incredibly bleak and can lead to some very, very bad things happening in human society. So, I, you know, and this is, again, that tension of the individual versus the structural. There are also tensions there in terms of how, how do you speak about this stuff. It's really hard to have conversations um, about abuse that's so normalised, you know, we, without offending particular groups. So how do you do that stuff? Because what you're pointing out there for me is not simply that you're comparing humans to animals, but you're, you're, the animals in that instance are being compared to a product. You know, they're, they're essentially treated like uh, something inanimate. And so you're comparing animals to the way we treat inanimate. Sorry, you're comparing, comparing humans to the way we treat inanimate objects. Uh, so yeah. are, are we treating these sentient beings as just another product that we can put through an efficient system and use for profit uh, and use for our, our own cultural or um, personal identities and so that's yeah that's that's the link that I see you making there and that's difficult because it uh, that challenges so much of as we said earlier the, the multiple structures that we have in our society yeah mm. I mean we've got a long history in human philosophy and human society of animalizing human groups that we don't like 
you know, and that in itself says, I mean, we did it with slavery. Um, we've done it in certain um, points of history in terms of racism. Um, we've certainly done it with women. And this is one of the things that, that ecofeminism made so clear, you know, that that because we set the human as so much better than the animal, whenever you move any group closer to animals, you begin to start to legitimate their poor treatment. And of course, this happened in the Holocaust with the way that human individuals were numbered. Um, but it's happened throughout history with heaps of marginalized groups and still occurs now. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's getting at those kind of structural supports for the abuse and the violence that I think is a particular strength of sociological analyses of violence um, I, that I think go beyond other disciplines' approaches to it. Yeah, great. Thank you. All right, so the last question I think I want to ask you um, uh, is about what what do we do with this information now that we, we have it <laughs> yeah. and now that we've thought about it. And the, the downside of this approach, I think, is it kind of becomes a little bit individualising. So I'm like, what do you do? And that doesn't really begin to address structural issues. So I'll just throw that out there as well. Perhaps there's collective responses. But how do we respond to now that we've done this work and become conscious of some of the mechanisms that we participate in? Um, and maybe as part of that, you can tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, it's look, it's really hard. I don't know how we how we do it um, successfully. Um, I mean, it's incremental. It's short of the revolution. It's incremental. Um, I think one of the things that we need to do is learn how to talk about it. I think we need to learn how to, you know, the discussion that you and I have had for a lot of people would be extremely difficult to have. Um, and I don't necessarily mean at a theoretical level. I mean, if you, even if you take all that away, you know, having discussions with people about the way that their lives depend on the, the abuse, the oppression and, and the death of other animals is really, really hard. People shut down, they turn away. So I think we need to learn how to talk about it, first of all. Um, and that can take many different formats. You know, that can be things like this that's considered to be outreach through podcasts or whatever, um, Animal activists are adept at, at talking to people and drawing and drawing similarities uh, to, to, you know, like say drawing similarities between the life of a cow and the life of a dog, so that someone could understand um, their perspective. Um, I think, obviously, of course, I'm an educator. I think we need to educate about it. I think we need to get this into curriculums. I think all controversial issues need to be in the curriculum, and they aren't. Um, neoliberal education system which is another podcast down the road um closes down that kind of critical analysis so and i think that we as educators need to be clever about finding ways to bring this stuff in and at the risk of sounding the convert you know vegan lifestyles um they're they're premised on the notion of as as little cruelty as is possible because no cruelty is 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 impossible but they're premised on acknowledging this notion of interconnected oppressions of acknowledging the idea of total liberation that you can't liberate one group without liberating another and that includes species and you change your life as a consumer um accordingly and i don't think consumption is the be all and end all but we have started to see that it is it's pretty important. There are things we can do as individuals as well as group. Wow, okay, that's great. I mean, there's a lot in there that you said, um, and I think the two things that I'm going to take away are the idea of uh, educating or conversations. So, yeah, these conversations are really difficult 
maybe only just because we've never had them before. You know, then if we haven't had them before, then we don't know how they work out and that's risky and dangerous and uncomfortable. Um, and by having them more and taking that risk, we might, you know, we might progress that in some way. And then there's actually practical things we can do as well. And I like that you talked about the vegan lifestyle as uh, a, a journey towards as little harm as possible. You know, it's not something that... Um, is a strictly bounded do this you're in you're out kind of thing it's actually about can what can we do that's moved towards that as, as an aspirational goal so that's great yeah thank you so much um before that's you right. go there's a couple of things i'd love for you to throw a couple of resources at our listeners to say if you're interested in what we've been talking about here's where you can go and find out some more so are there maybe three resources that you would recommend people go and have a look at yep um, I think partly because I'm a sociologist and we never do anything simply, I've come up with three areas <laughs> rather than three distinct resources. Sure, um, and I've, I've gone for access here. So the first one is, I think there's a lot of good documentaries out there at the minute. Um, and it's really heartening to see the rise of, of these kind of documentaries. Now, it comes with a warning. Some of them can be incredibly confrontational to watch. Um, but but they move, you know, through that level of confrontation. So, for example, at the extreme end, very difficult to watch, would be something like Earthlings. Um, and I have to admit here, I've never got past the first five seconds. But I'm wow. told that it's awful. Um, but if you have the constitution that can face these kind of things and you like being challenged, then that's, you know, it's a good place to start. Dominion is another one, I think, in the Australian context. I think that was made by Australians. Um, also quite difficult to watch. Um, but then there are films that are a little bit easier. None of this stuff is easy because we are challenging, taken for granted assumptions. But there are some that are a little bit easier, like The Last Pig or 73 Cows, both of which are documentaries about farmers who had a connection with an animal that sparked a change for them moving towards a vegan lifestyle and moving out of farming. And it's a documentary about their journey. So... I mean, and there are heaps and heaps of others, um, but there's lots of good films out there that, that give you an idea of the structural issues, not just the interpersonal issues. Mm, okay, great. Thank you. And um, the second area is there's some good podcasts, and one that came to my mind is one called Knowing Animals, which showcases the work of animal studies scholars um, around the world. They do like a 20, 30-minute interview in this podcast, so you can listen to them while you're doing your cleaning or your dog walking or whatever it is that you do. Um, and it, because it's animal studies scholars, they're not all focused on violence because animal studies scholars look at all aspects of our relationships with animals. So there might be some sifting that you'd need to do to get to the specific violence aspect. Um, but if you're interested in animal studies more generally, that's a good one. And in terms of books, if you want to really start to delve into the structural aspects as opposed to the interpersonal, I, um, with Richard Twine in 2014, I co-edited a book called the rise of critical animal studies from the margins to the centre. And that, at the time, it brought together um, new, emerging and established scholars working in critical animal studies to think through the various aspects um, of animal oppression. So that would be a more scholarly um, resource for people to have a look at. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, there's so many resources there. I will um, provide <laughs> links where I can uh, to some of those in the uh, in the show notes. Uh, but that's excellent. There's lots there we can follow up on. Thank you so much. Um, if our listeners wanted to follow you, find your work on the internet somewhere, where would they go to do that? 
Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't really understand the point of Twitter, but I'm on there anyway, so they can find me. <laughs> um, I'm Animal Sociology is, is my, I don't know what it is, is it my Twitter name? Um, I also convened the Animals in Society Working Group, and that has a Facebook page that people can ask to join. Everybody is approved. You only have to ask so that we don't get the spammers. Um, and the Animals in Society Working Group also has a website with a blog where we've had lots of guest bloggers talk about some of these issues that might be of interest to them. Great. Another resource there as well with the blogs. That's perfect. Yeah, um, sorry. So much information. No, no it's great. Yes. <laughs> And one last thing before we let you go, uh, is there anything that you're working on at the moment or a recent book that you, we can plug for you because you've been very generous, so we'd love to be generous back as well. Um, I have just published a book, the one on companion animals and domestic violence that's getting quite a lot of interest at the minute, which I'm really pleased to have written. It almost feels like it took 20 years to get to this book and now it's out, which is great. Um, I'm doing some work with Zoe Sutton, who's a postgraduate candidate on... Um, the way that we discursively construct pest species and what the implications of that are in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, and next year, I'm hoping to take a break from all of the horrible animal stuff and do some pleasant work um, with women who run animal sanctuaries and talk to them about their deep and meaningful relationships with their rescued animals. Nice. That sounds really great. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much. You've been really generous, as I said, a couple no, of times. And, and thank you. Some, it's been great. First of all, some very difficult concepts here, so <laughs> thank you for that. All right, well, I hope we'll talk again soon, but thanks again. Thank you. Links to the resources discussed in the podcast are provided in the show notes. If you like the podcast, please share it widely. My name is Ben Lomar, and thank you for listening to Exploring Violence and Society.